Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, I get to say something I haven't said, at least not very often on the show. We're going to talk with someone who was actually struck by lightning. And I think you can probably tell this actually lived, because otherwise it would be a really boring interview. But the lightning strike at age 15 also turned on a grand mal seizure disorder that lasted for the next 20 years. A person who's meditated since she was 12, probably the wrong way, because otherwise the lightning wouldn't have struck her, just saying. Anyway, she used those tools to manage seizures in a way that was actually doing bad things to her. She just didn't know it. The seizures got worse. She flatlined in a doctor's office during an exam, did it again in front of her young daughter, and decided, all right, I'm going to have to hack this. And she went on to find a way to do it. Her name is Lisa Wimberger, and she created something called the Neurosculpting Institute in Colorado and has written seven books on neuroplasticity and stress management. So today we're going to talk about brain entrainment, stress management, meditation practices that actually work and don't cause harm. Lisa, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. So excited to talk to you. Now, this is something I don't think I've ever talked about on the show. It's hard to remember after like 900 episodes. But I grew up uh, with a mother who had epilepsy. So she was on uh, substantial anti-seizure drugs and had seizures on a very regular basis. So I know a thing or two about this thing Mm -hmm. called epilepsy, right? And eventually she ended up um, having brain surgery, uh, which helped to resolve some of it. But it also left her with some disabilities. So it can be a big deal. Uh, Though she wasn't struck by lightning, but she is from Roswell. Maybe they were aliens. I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. I, I just have to start with this. What's it like to get struck by lightning? It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, it. I, I didn't believe it happened, to be honest with you. Um it's, it came out through a garage door handle that I was leaning against. So the side of the house got hit and, um, there was a bunch of friends standing around and, uh, I was leaning against the garage with a friend. So we were shoulder to shoulder and the lightning came out through, uh, the garage handle, which was at the base of my spine. So out through the spine and both he and I were thrown from the garage door, like three feet, um, landed face first in the dirt and all of our friends staring mouths open, just like saying, Oh my God, you got hit by lightning. I honestly didn't believe it happened. I, I, I was conscious. I was in excruciating pain, um, like a sledgehammer. And I remember looking at my watch and it was stopped, uh, And then we went back to my friend's house. We were on vacation and it had been raining and we were all wet and I was in shock and he was in shock. And we just went back to my friend's house and they ran in. They said, you know, Lisa was hit by lightning. And of course, nobody believes a 15 year old that says it. And there's my birthday cake on the table. And I'm in complete dissociation and just sit down and start eating the cake and really didn't buy the story. And then about two weeks later, I started having blackouts, which, uh, you know, I thought I was having fainting spells. Um, You know, when you're having seizures, you're not conscious that you're having seizures. So I think I'm fainting 
and um, my friends are finding me on the floor. Um, I'm embarrassed. I'm hiding it. I'm not telling anybody. Um, very, very long story short is I started having seizures right after the lightning strike, and they persisted and got so much worse over the next few decades. Um, and there was no diagnosis. I mean, I, I did go to the doctor when I was like 17 um, because I had told my parents this was happening, but they had never witnessed one. So they took me to the doctor and you'll appreciate the fabulous diagnosis I got, which was, oh, you're hormonal. That was it. Well, it's better than crazy, which is what the yeah, other I guess like so. Say, right? So I was hormonal and they didn't do anything. And, um, and then I just stopped paying attention to them and they were, they were wiping me out. You know, I was having a couple of years, so not as frequent as an epileptic would have, but you know, they were vasovagal seizures, grand mal tonic seizures. So my, I was going into bradycardia. My heart was stopping. I was turning blue and the recuperation period just was horrible. And it was getting worse and worse because all neuroplasticity gets you better at anything you keep doing. So it was getting really good at having seizures and really bad at recuperating. And, um, and it, it's, it, it was the gift. It was a gift because it's the reason I do my life's work. So, but it, it was really, really uh, a rough time. I can believe it. And since then you've either become the most interesting or the most scary person in the world. <laughs> Probably both. Ask my daughter. She'll tell you both. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go with most interesting. And, and there's okay. so many touch points. Um, you know, my good friend David Perlmutter, who's been on the show several times, um, wrote the foreword for your new book. Dr. Rick Hansen has been on the show, endorsed your neurosculpting book. Um, you've followed Dr. Porges has been on the show. And even um, our friend Jody Levy from Vitamin Water, a woman who's, who's been an investor um, in some of my companies, is uh, is working with you on the app you have around this. So I feel like I'm amazed I didn't talk with you, but okay, so then said, and Gabrielle Lyons when I said, Dave, you should talk with Lisa. So I started digging up your background as some of my prep for the show. Uh -oh. And you've, <laughs> man, okay, so you've got all your you know, certifications, certification in neuroleadership and medical neuroscience, neurobiology, visual perception, which is an area of real interest for me. But then you're like, oh, yeah, Omega Institute, the Law Enforcement Survival Institute. Oh, four years with Ashaya monks and psychic <laughs> awareness training and autogenic hypnosis. Yeah. So are you remotely controlling my mind right now? Um, I have been this whole time for years. <laughs> You've done some serious, like, heavy-duty esoteric stuff. You spent, like, years with monks and all this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean... We've all seen the, the movies where you get struck by lightning, you develop psychic powers, superpowers, yeah. and uh, extra arms, depending on what movie it is. Yeah. Do you think it did something weird to you? Uh, oh, you're asking, the, you're asking the question that's going to cause me to have to tell the truth now to the world. That's my job. Um, yeah. <laughs> it definitely heightened a bunch of stuff. I mean, I was always a very intuitive person. Um, but it heightened pretty much everything, including my maladaptive disorders like dissociation, right? It heightened uh, intuition. It heightened um, fantastical perception. 
uh, it heightened some kinds of synesthesia um, and it heightened the dissociation and, um, and delusion, definitely heightened delusion. I mean, I think I was delusional for a very long time around um, not listening to my body and pretending my body wasn't doing what it was doing. So it, it, it heightened everything. Um, and yeah, my, I don't even know why my background is what it is. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Long Island Sicilian girl. There is no explanation why I should have such an esoteric background because it certainly was not like the family. Right? You weren't raised we, by hippies. No, I was raised by Roman Catholic Sicilian, first generation Sicilian Roman Catholics. And um, definitely not hippies. But my brother... My older brother, um, you know, he was into the Grateful Dead and he came home from college one day when I was 12 and he was like learning some cool self-hypnosis from this really cool professor and he was just teaching his little sister and he taught me my first, uh, I guess, introspective techniques and they blew my mind. It was like a fish to water. I just knew this is, this is my path. And I was a fanatic. I was meditating every single day, dream journals, meditation journals. I started um, doing self-hypnosis prompts and creating my own self-hypnotic triggers and doing all of this at like 12 and 13, long before the lightning. But then when the lightning event happened and I started getting even more uncomfortable in my body, I grabbed on to those metaphysical practices even more because they allow you to dissociate from your body. So I kind of had an invitation to go deeper into things like the metaphysical work. And I think I was 19 when I met the Ashayas. And they were, um, you know, it's fair to say they were a cult. So um, tell me about that, that group. I don't actually know much about them. Yeah, so I, met, I I signed up for a meditation workshop on Long Island. It was a, a workshop that was happening in Brooklyn. And I get there, and a friend told me about it. And it's these, you know, beautiful smelling people. They smelled like sandalwood, and they had this, you know, beautiful like names. Spray. Yeah. yeah, beautiful names like Durga and, you know. Snow um, leaf. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and they were wearing these robes, and... Uh, they were teaching a form of transcendental meditation. It was called Ascension. It was a derivation of TM mm -hmm. um, out of a, a core group of people that had migrated from Seattle to North Carolina, and now are there teaching in Brooklyn. And their practices were amazing. I mean, I absolutely benefited from the Ascension technique. So I would go do cycle weekends with them uh, in Brooklyn. So you'd go on a Friday night, and you'd be meditating all Friday night, all Saturday, Sunday, you'd break for meals in silence and you'd leave Sunday all tripped out, like blissed yep. out, tripped out. Although it would take me like eight hours to actually get into the meditation, you know, driving on the Belt Parkway into Brooklyn, I'd be like so aggro Friday night and I'd be <laughs> sitting there with my eyes closed like, are you freaking kidding me? I have to meditate. And, you know, my mind's like, okay, the guy next to me is breathing really loud. I hear the refrigerator, the damn cat box. They didn't clean it before I got here. Like all the aggro stuff. So by Saturday afternoon, I would start to chill. By Sunday night, I'd leave there totally tranced out. And I have to say the Ascension techniques saved my 
mental sanity because I was a public school teacher. Um, it, I, they saved me from killing children. <laughs> That's how bad I couldn't handle my stress, but the Ascension techniques totally saved me. So I have nothing but gratitude to the Ashayas. There was a lot of dogma that went with it that I chose not to take. I just used the techniques. Um, uh, they, but it was powerful. And that was TM. I had already been doing like my own homework around energetics, but then it was um, a few years after that I stopped studying with the Ashayas that I started a four-year curriculum in Denver with a school that was teaching from the curriculum of the Berkeley Psychic Institute. So it was like, you know, three and a half years, really. Like of, remote viewing, yeah, reading people's minds, all that kind of stuff. Like all of that kind of stuff to the point where I ended up co-facilitating uh, various workshops with Dal Graff, who used to run the Stargate program for the CIA. He uh, worked at Stanford and he ran it for its duration. And he and I have co-taught and I've gotten some gotten to be a part of some cool studies at CU Boulder and the energy engineering labs where they were having me remote view and hooking me up to machines and, you know, fun out of this world kind of stuff, but really didn't do much for my sense of grounded self, which was always the problem <laughs> you, for me. You mean remote viewing and astral travel doesn't make you feel grounded? Lisa, not, do not, say. not at all. Okay. Um, which is, which was part of the problem I always had, right? I mean, these fantastical experiences, but not having anything pragmatic or grounded. And my body was screaming at me to just like get my head out of my butt and go tend to this reality right here. It, it's really, it, it's really fascinating. So you went super kind of out of your body after all that electrical stuff, um, but you've talked about your vagal nerve. And, and you've also gone really deep on that. How did you move from the, okay, I'm you know, going to go to the very edges of what humans are capable of. And by the way, if you're listening, saying it's all BS, there's pretty good evidence now that these things do work. There's many books written about it with real studies and all that stuff. They're just hard to do. They take work. And probably not everyone can be very good at them. Uh, and maybe being struck by lightning makes you good at them. Or maybe that's just who you are. Which one do you think it is? Um, is it the lightning or is it who you are? I, mm, maybe a little both. Who I, who I am is willing to do it. And, and then the lightning kind of opened me up to um, touching it. And then fanatical practice got me into the space where I bought that I could do it. Right. And, and, you know, for, for people, nobody has to believe any of this is real. Like <laughs> that's the beautiful thing is, you don't have to buy it, you know, because if it's, if it's not the flavor you like, then you get to choose other flavors. But for me, in the energy engineering labs, you know, I'm hooked up to, um, the room is hooked up to a random events generator. I'm being recorded. Uh, the plants I'm interacting with are hooked up to galvanic skin response machines, and I'm being observed by two researchers. So we had a lot of different measurements in place, and I got enough proof for myself out of those studies that made me believe I wasn't crazy. So that's so all you were I were able to influence the randomness of the numbers. Oh yeah. Will. And the plants and their sine wave signatures on the 
computers. Um, some of those little charts are in the neurosculpting book. The, the plant research is something a lot of people don't know about, but the guy who invented EEG started out by measuring plants and noticing how they responded to the environment around them. In yeah. fact, he invented the lie detector. So it, yeah. it's a fascinating history going back, what, to the 40s, if I remember? Yeah, and man, plants don't lie. They're just like right there with you responding to the room. Um, yeah, it, it, it was wild, wild work. But your question, how did I get to the vagus nerve? Um, it was the episode I had in a doctor's office that just rocked me. So I'm in um, a gynecological exam. Okay, <laughs> worst possible place to black out, right? Oh, no. All I can see is the tops of my knees and my gynecologist, who at the time was a, a much older man with this little bow tie. And I, <laughs> I can like see his eyes peeking over the tops of my knees and he's checking in on me and I'm, I'm not feeling good. And I tell him I'm, I'm going to faint. You know, I know what fainting feels like. I've been fainting my whole life. So I wake up after I faint to him with this needle of atropine. His hands are shaking. He's got a loaded needle of atropine. It's poised at my heart and he's just wow. gone white. And I open my eyes. I can't talk. I can't speak. I can't hold my bowels. I can't hold my urine. I'm just laying there drenched like I always wake up. And he says, you flatlined and you had a grand mal tonic seizure and you flatlined and we couldn't get you breathing. We couldn't get your heart going. Has this happened before? And I'm thinking, Oh, this has been happening since I was 15. I always wake up like this, you know, at least three, four times a year. I'm waking up in my own waist. Oh my and, goodness. You had some and, serious seizures. Wow. Yeah. And, and he says, well, they sent me to the emergency room. I get the EEGs, the EKGs. I'm not epileptic. My cortical functions fine. And he says, your vasovagal extreme syncope. And I'm like, well, I don't understand any of those words. So I left with a diagnosis, which caused me to go find out what that meant. Uh -huh. And that's what pushed me towards neuroscience. And what I got from that moment was, he says this is a stress disorder. How could I be stressed? I've been meditating since I was 12. And that's when the first light bulb went off. User error. <laughs> You're meditating in such maladaptive ways. You are you are exacerbating dissociation. And that's when I went, oh, crap. Meditation can be dangerous for people who have maladaptive vagal tone. Yep. Oh, okay. So I go down this rabbit hole of neurophysiology because I have to because my seizures are getting worse. The whole not dying thing is a big motivator. It's yeah. a big motivator. And actually it wasn't even the big, it was my daughter that finally pushed mm. me because the, the last few seizures I had just traumatized the hell out of her. I mean, three years old, she watched me flatline in a food court and I woke up having no idea. I woke up to paramedics not knowing where she was. Oh, and no. um, fortunately, a, gentleman in the food court was watching her but so she saw that and then shortly after that my was my last seizure which was I was not able to breathe on my own again normally you recalibrate your heart kicks in you're breathing but this last seizure I had I was I was watching my body going I am not going back to that broken body 
coming back from those seizures was so painful and so embarrassing and humiliating. And why would I want more of these? And I could hear myself going, so easy not to breathe. And my boyfriend, who's now my husband, but he was there at the time and he's pushing on my chest. He's going, you have to breathe. You have to breathe. And that's when I thought, oh, wait, wait, I got a kid upstairs in a crib. Oh, this can never happen again because I'm done if it does. So that was me now gathering all of the neuro stuff I had been learning and saying, I have to come up with a hack into this fraction of a second window. I got a window, right? There's a seizure halo from stress and maladaptive vagal tone. And then there's a seizure. Well, there's a gap in space and time between those two things. And it might be a fraction of a second, but that is a response pattern that I've gotten really good at. And neuroplasticity says I can change those things. Doesn't tell me how exactly, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I had all of this meditation that I was not using for my well-being, and then all of this science, and I just backwards engineered. I took a lot of elements from hypnosis, and then I put in place a lot of like really regimented steps that would tease parts of my brain into compliance so that I could get to my vagal tone, and then I could get to what Bessel van der Kock says, you know, your body keeps the score. I could get to where my body was holding those rigid patterns, and I had no idea if this would work, but I practiced for eight months with this imaginary script and this process, and then a seizure halo hit, and before I knew it, the process I had been practicing for like eight months kicked in, and I interrupted the seizure and had full-blown tremors for like eight hours. My nervous system was just releasing everything that it had been holding, including me narrating memories I didn't even know I had. And so there was clearly trauma underneath the dissociation that I never even knew was there. And I knew when I was done shaking for like that whole day, uh, I was never going to have another one again. And then I sort of consecrated to whatever force in the universe. I'm like, okay, you just fixed this. You just gave me a second chance. Now I have to go quit working at my consulting job because I was a consultant for Accenture. Um, like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm in service to this. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to be an entrepreneur. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't know how to raise a daughter with no money right now. But if I walk away from the promise I just made myself, then I'm pretty stupid. So um that, that's pretty intense the, the people with vagal dysfunction probably don't know too much about how it feels i have very high vagal tone uh and i've uh, passed you. out um always in medical offices doing crazy procedures but i've woken up with people holding onto my tongue so i wouldn't swallow it yeah uh which yeah. isn't very fun um and i actually talked with stephen porges like what is, what's going on here and it's uh, it, it's a weird feeling, but it's it's funny. Football players and taller, muscular people tend to be the fainters, right? And I can just imagine, I'm like, oh, you're laying back on a table. Geez, is that going to affect your blood pressure and all yeah. that? And uh, I've talked with Nick Foles about having 
um, low blood pressure, which I've had for my entire life, Me which too. goes along with that and yeah. is exacerbated by toxic mold exposure. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I'm really resonating with what you're saying. So I'm like, I, I wasn't quite there, but there's, you know, enough of a flavor there. I'm like, oh man, that, that really sucks. Cause when, did when you, you get, wake up, ever get that stomach dropping out kind of feeling? Oh um, yeah. I, I've literally looked at someone and said, I'm going to be unconscious in eight seconds. Yes. Right. Yeah. And like, I know I can feel it happening, you know, right where it, right where it's going to happen. And it's, at least I haven't figured out how to interrupt that. I, I, sometimes I can, if I like tense all the muscles, get the yeah, blood pressure back down. <laughs> yeah. Like a fighter pilot. But, yeah. um, I actually don't have much going on in that, in that space anymore. It, it's highly unusual to have uh, any kind of issue, but it's come from fixing probably more of my biology than my neurology. Mm-hmm. Um, just regulating my blood pressure better. Uh, everyone's going, I'm trying to lower mine. I'm like, I don't know. You don't want it too low. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I want to go back to something you said that was really, really true, but almost not known. And you said meditation can be dangerous. This is something that even the Buddhists teach in, in their old writings. You know, I talked about that with the um, the monks in Nepal uh, when I went there to learn meditation, uh, where they're saying, yeah, for some people, nope, don't do this. And the wrong path of meditation, the fast path, which of course is the one I would be most attracted to, like, well, yeah, you could be enlightened in one lifetime if you don't go nuts along the way. Yeah. So uh, talk to me about the danger of meditation and what you were doing that was Yeah. Wrong. So it goes to physiology first, right? So this is the spectrum we live in as humans between our complete shutdown, freeze, stress response, and our complete rage, arousal, stress response, and everything in between. Homeostasis somewhere in the middle, different for every person. Most meditation forms generally are positioned, at least the ones I was learning, positioned to dial you back from arousal, which is dialing you from over here towards homeostasis, dialing down the heart rate, calming your mind, letting things go. That's fantastic if your predominant stress response is arousal. But for those of us who are vagal predisposed, and we go in the freeze direction. We already have depressed heart rate. We already are somewhat dissociated from the ability to regulate our body. So to let go of anything, we've already probably let it go. We've let it go so far. We don't know how to find our way back. Um, But the dissociation part of freeze, which is a physiological result in the brain, the cognitive dissociation, is not helped by relaxation meditation. So the, so what people in freeze need, they need to wake up the body. They need an approach towards arousal to come to homeostasis. How many people, just on average, or like what percentage of people would you estimate, there may not be studies, but just from your experience, would you estimate are in that category versus the I want to go kill everyone category? You know, um, ever since I started the Institute, they've come out of the woodwork. So for me, it's a huge part of my clientele. Um, so I think my, I'm biased for me, I would say it's 50, 50, but I don't, I don't know that to be true. What I can say, it's very interesting because, uh, the Institute is a, an intern site for some of the bigger universities that graduate psychotherapists and contemplative psychotherapists. They come which, here. Which institute? Your... Naropa. 
Okay. Yeah. So we'll take Naropa interns and they'll start a therapy practice here and we'll then give them neurosculpting training. And what I've found consistently is that when they have anxiety people, they're fine. But when they have the shutdown clients, they're, they're coming to our governing LPC and they're like, how do we deal with shutdown? And that's when we're like, you got to talk about the vagus nerve. You've got to get them moving their body. You've got to get them shaking. You have to get them feeling their body and not dissociating. So for those people, we don't give them relaxation meditations. We have them lean against a wall and feel their body with their eyes closed. Or we have them do TRE, tremor release exercises, neurogenic tremoring. Or we have them do vagal toning like, you know, for five minutes. Um, and we Literally get them like just putting your lips together and sounding like a horse. Yes. Yeah. Cause <laughs> okay. all of this innervates vagus mm-hmm. nerve in the brainstem. So we get them to understand that it's not a one size fits all. And so when you hear the word meditation, it's not one size fits all. There's all different kinds and you kind of have to know what works for your body. So true. Um, there are some forms of meditation where, um, I don't, I don't do them because I get, I just get too relaxed. I feel like crap for hours afterwards mm-hmm. um, because I go really deep. Then again, I used to be a pretty angry person. You know, my, my file from middle school, the number of fights I was in, I never threw a first punch, but I was through the last one. I, I, I could get pretty activated <laughs> there, you know, the fight part of fight or flight. But then I'm like, I don't really want to do that anymore. I got really good at, you know, the, the freeze part to the point. And, and I'm, I'm sharing this with you and also for your comments, but also just with listeners. You can go that far from the, you know, quick trigger all the way to the point where, you know, I've seen people trained by Ida Rolf. You know, Rolfing's pretty intense. You know, they stick their fingers. I lay down. I go, okay, I'll relax now. And then I wake up an hour later and the guy's like, I've never been able to Rolf anyone this much in my entire 70 years of, you know, life. Um, Like, you didn't even say a thing. I'm like, I don't even know where I was. I just kind of took a nap. Yeah. So that's the, but I turned on meditation abilities to do that. What's dangerous? Uh, I'm not sure that was good. <laughs> yeah, but what's dangerous about um, being a freeze predisposed person and not really Which knowing probably, anything yeah. about it is that it's extremely socially compliant, right? It's not a disruptor. So you're out in the social world and you have rage and arousal. You disrupt and people are like, oh, you're stressed. You better get help. But you're a freezer and you've got a flat affect. You remain calm. You don't get loud or boisterous and it's socially acceptable. In fact, it's even preferred. So for me, when I would go into freeze response, you know, if it didn't go to seizure, but I would just be in frozen response, it was misconstrued as quiet, respectful, um, compliant, brave, and it was all maladaptive. So, so freezers don't even know they have an issue because the outside world is not recognizing it or, or alerting to it. I remember walking home when I was in sixth grade and my friend was hiding in the bushes with a pen and he jumped out behind me, went behind me and put the pen right here as a joke. And I just stood there total flat expression. And he walked around and he started shaking me. He said, don't you ever do that again? And I said, do what? He said, just stand there. I didn't know how not to just stand there. Wow. So freeze is very tricky. And thank 
God for Stephen Porges. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. I want to get in now into neurosculpting, what you created, how it works, who ought to use it, because it, it's a new idea. It, it's There aren't that many new ideas floating around like this. So talk me through what it is. Okay, so it's a five-step scaffolding for a meditation slash mental journey experience. So like hypnosis has an induction and then a body with rules Hold on that a second they, here. Yeah. I feel like you just hypnotized me with that first <laughs> description of it. I was in my mind working to unpack all those words and it did yes. something weird to my mind. You put a slash in there. <laughs> are you are you NLPing me right now? I'm not. Lisa, maybe. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, maybe. T- give me give me something that I can unpack because I'm a pretty smart guy. I don't know what you okay. just said. Okay. There's an induction that's necessary in hypnosis that gets you safe, comfortable, and building trust. That's missing in most meditation forms I've ever studied. That uh-huh. induction is actually vagal toning, right? It's calming the limbic system. And it is shunting blood oxygen and glucose to the front of the brain for prefrontal awareness. So a good induction um, that's going to get your nervous system um, receiving and compliant and uh, willing to change is going to be something that first downregulates the midbrain. So we're not in extreme arousal or extreme freeze, right? And then something that shunts uh, activity resources to the front of the brain. So what we have is dorsal medial activation, which is what we say is witness mode, right? Mm -hmm. And we can otherwise say creativity, uh, empathy, we can say focused awareness, whatever you want to say. But when we tip the scales from this turning down, midbrain turning down and prefrontal turning up, we're induced. I've never had an induction in meditation. So here I come with a maladaptive nervous system to a meditation and they're like, okay, just let it go. Well, my midbrain is so fired up or my brainstem is so torqued, I can't connect. So with neurosculpting, the first two steps are to create that induced brain state through words, through guidance that you can then do on your own. So there is a checklist that quiets the midbrain. Super simple. Can you walk me through a couple of those? I want to quiet my midbrain right now. Yes. Am I dry? Am I, is my bladder empty? If not, do I know where the bathroom is? Is my temperature regulated? Can I swallow? Do I have clean water nearby to drink? Food in the fridge? A bed to sleep in? Any semblance of my basic needs are met right now. I'm comfortable. That's going to quiet your midbrain. 
So it's creating safety, basically. Yes, okay. creating safety. But safety is not a word everybody can have. So I like to say creating comfort okay. and focusing on what you what is comfortable about your environment. When this starts to dial down, which it will do once you marinate in your own comfort and safety, there's a beautiful inverse relationship that we're exploring in neuroscience that says limbic downregulation yields blood oxygen and glucose available to the prefrontal cortex. So for ADD, this is kind of important because ADD people have less oxygen and less blood flow in the prefrontal cortex. Yes. So we're doing this with the seesaw, but we can actually slam into the prefrontal cortex with its own checklist. So the things that get the prefrontal cortex really activated, novelty, humor, wonder, creativity. So in neurosculpting, if I were guiding you through an induction, I would ask you for three to five minutes to just notice your comfortable cushion, soft texture of your shirt, your breath is breathing itself, your environment is as you like it, and then I would slam you into your prefrontal cortex. It's a little more graceful than that, but I would ask you to imagine the most ridiculous things. What would orange taste like? What if you were could bring your awareness to one hair on your head? What's the funniest joke you remember? I would be just giving your prefrontal cortex bizarre novel candy. And so it's meaningless, but now we've induced. So when we're prefrontal oriented, we're limbically regulated more than we were before. And now we're in witness mode safely, but we don't want to lose connection to the body. So the next phase, step three, is what is the pattern you want to investigate, edit, release, sculpt, whatever, story, right? Your belief. With neurosculpting, when we're telling the story, we don't want you to slip into a reliving, right? You can slip into a reliving with like talk therapy. Um, We don't want to re-traumatize by asking you to think of your old belief or your old story that needs editing. So what we do in neurosculpting is we create bilateral stimulation so that you can't slip into a lateralized default thought pattern. So So, this EMDR kind of back and forth kind of thing? Yes, but we do it linguistically. So as I'm guiding you, now that you're induced and I might say, what would it be like to bring to mind um, that time that you got stage fright for the first time? I I might spell that time you got stage F-R-I-G-H-T. I would spell left hemisphere, Broca's area, no, left hemisphere, Wernicke's area in the back is going ding, ding, ding. I know what that means. I've left lateralized, activated you. Then I'm going to say, and if that time in your mind could have a texture, a color, a temperature, what would that be? Now we've got right brain symbolic associations happening. So I'm helping you toggle across the midline, keeping you safe without a reliving. So you're bringing up a pattern. Now we have to go to the body. Step four, what's your body doing right now? Right now, is it contracting? Do you have tingles? Are you numb? What is happening in your body? So we do a body scan. So now we're seeing where's the body associating with this thought we just brought up, but we brought it up safe enough to get a mild but not extreme reaction. And then we take that body experience in step four and we breathe through it or we shake it out or we use creative mind to imagine doing something with it. 
And whenever the body has shifted, either felt shift or an imagined shift, we have people anchor into that with a hand gesture, a non-dominant hand hand gesture, something somatic so that we are now linking and syncing. This is like a post-hypnotic trigger. So your hand gesture, at the moment you renegotiated this old stage fright memory, is now going to be linked to the fact that you have renegotiated it. And then step five is we give a linguistic trigger. You get to name your experience. You spell out a word in your mind so that after the meditation, which is extremely mind active, it's not no thought, it's lots of thought. But at the end, you've got a trigger word, you've got a trigger hand gesture, and you've laid down the content in a ripe receptive nervous system because you followed an induction. And that is phase one. That's the five steps. Wow. And then what you do is you repeat it so that after a few repetitions from neuroplasticity, your hand gesture alone can cause a cascade of nervous system regulation, not just around that pattern, but any tangential pattern that might be ready to respond because as we know, dendrites all grow towards each other over time. So you can unravel tangential stories with a hand gesture and a word if you load the content. It's, it's programming. You got to load the content. You got to get the brain compliant enough to do that. And then you got to convince yourself that it's real, which is what all of the neuroplastic components are doing. And then it's just a matter of repetition. Now, you have the Neuropraxis app, and does that guide you through these things? The Neuropraxis app will give you a library of guided meditations. It's not an instructional platform. It's an experiential platform. So for anyone who wants to just have a library of these interactive meditations that bring you through journeys of, of neuro support, um, you would want that app because you get to press play and I do all the work. I'm guiding you through the five steps and you just listen and you have your, you write your words and you have your hand gestures and you favorite your different ones and you create a user library for yourself. If you want to learn how to do this yourself with strategy, then you come to the Neurosculpting Institute, you take some classes and we teach you. That is, uh, is that something that you're doing remotely now, given yes. all this COVID stuff? Right. Yes. So you can it basically was, do it over Zoom. Yeah, it was always remote, hybrid, in-person remote, but now it's exclusively remote for the time okay. being. Well, it's, it's a fascinating approach to meditation, and it makes so much sense just from a neuroscience perspective, you know, activating different parts of the brain and all of that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm definitely intrigued. What happens if someone has normal vagal behaviors? So, you know, uh, just a, an average brain or an average nervous system that's maybe healthier. If they do this kind of neurosculpting work, what benefits or risks are there? Uh, I haven't seen many risks. Um, the benefits are you still get to hack into your nervous system and you get to file down the sharp edges of any thought that might have triggered you into arousal at any point in time, or you can create brand new thoughts. Neuroplasticity doesn't care if it's a, an experience you've never had or an experience you've had. It only cares that you're programming it with buy-in 
and it's going to store that in your mind as a pattern. So you can create, let's say you want more grace in your life. You don't know what grace feels like. You've never experienced it. But you can evoke in step three an association with grace, what you think it might be. You could chew on it. What color is it? What texture is it? What temperature is it? What words describe it? You can ask your nervous system to give you its associations. And then you can take those associations and steep in those. And then find where your body is starting to respond as you're steeping in your made-up version of grace. And you can anchor in with a hand gesture to that experience. And now you're crafting and cultivating and building an experience of grace in a very mechanical, logical way. And ultimately, you can start tapping into that experience because you've loaded it into the nervous system. So it doesn't have to be all for trauma. You can you can cultivate whatever it is you want. Neuroplasticity is one of those things that has been at the core of, of my evolution as a human, just realizing you could do this you know, 20 something years ago and working on it. And there's all kinds of things like exercise increases, BDNF, um, um, brain derived. Neurotrophic factor. Thank you. I was like, the end just left me there. And there's nerve growth factor in GF and things like that. So exercise does it. I make a supplement that increases it about four times more than exercise. I've talked with the Lifecycle Lion's Manes guys who have an Australian uh, Lion's Mane that does it. And there's probably 15 other compounds we know of, including weird stuff that has to go in through your skin like dihexa and all kinds of things. So I feel like we have a rich tool set to turn on neuroplasticity. And is it advisable to do some or all of that and then do neurosculpting so your brain's like like Play-Doh? Sure. Why, I would love to experiment with all of that. I think <laughs> if you have all those tools available and you add neurosculpting, I want to hear how it unfolds for you. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we are creating our world all the time, and it's usually unintentionally and by default programming. And I feel like the more you can take agency – why not? Why not? Uh, I like your attitude there. A lot of people's eyes get really big when I say stuff like that. But it's like, why not? If you're going to do something that's going to improve your brain, you might as well do it. Um, even uh, um, even like the Halo Neuro thing is out there now, a little bit of current. And the only reason I can still at least mostly keep up with my 11-year-old at ping pong is because, funny enough, I run electrical current over my brain and the ball slows down when I do that. And I I improve more quickly like a young person versus like someone who's 48. It's pretty incredible. How very matrix of you. That sounds it's awesome. Super matrix. You know, the ball slows down and then, you know, zeros and ones pop out of his eyes. It's so, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you've done some other stuff though, speaking of pretty crazy that I want to talk with you about. Um, spinal cord injury. In fact, mm. I know you do work for free for people with spinal cord injury. Yeah, that is some serious neuroplasticity because the neurons we're talking about aren't even, you know, in the brain. You're talking about the spinal cord itself. What have you been able to do and why do you think it's doing it? Uh, I've been able to get paraplegics and quadriplegics to move again, which I did not start out expecting that. Um, but it, it stemmed from my first case, which was a, a quad. My dear, dear friend, Heather, I met her. She came to me for stress. Um, C3 partial sever, so everything below C3 in the cervical spine was 
fairly annihilated, not Christopher Reeves level, but because she was partial, but she didn't have arms, hands, and lower trunk uh, volitional movement, but she could breathe on her own. Um, so she had come to me 11 years post accident for stress. And um, over those years with every neurological intervention possible, she did have arm movement. So she came to me with paralyzed hands, paralyzed lower body. And at, um, as she's telling me her story, she had been thrown from a horse. And um, as she's saying this, um, I said, Heather, what, what was the last thing you remember from being on the horse? She said, last thing I remember was holding on for dear life. And as she said it, I, I made a fist with both hands as though I were holding reins. And I looked at her hands and that was the position she was in. And I went, wow. oh my God, yes, you're paralyzed, but there's also an unresolved pattern. And then my brain went to all of the work with V.S. Ramachandran and Phantom Limb and all the stuff that I had read that had just wanted to use at some point. And I said, Heather, can we try something? So I put her into this 20-minute meditation. This was our seventh session that I have on video because um, she was pro bono and I was doing a case study. So my camera was set up. And I had her go in step three of neurosculpting back to the story of falling off the horse. And I had her choose to remember opening her hands to let go of the reins. And then because of the way neuroplasticity works, you know, if, if you don't use five individuated digits on your hand consistently and you use them synced up, like if you bound index and middle finger together for a month, those two maps in your motor cortex would fuse. So they would become one map. So you wow. would use them in sync even if you unbound them. So this is, this is how n neurons adapt and they connect. So with Heather, 11 years of having a paw basically in her motor map, five fingers fused into one in her motor map. So I, I suspected, what if I had her draw all her finger maps back in her motor cortex? So I'm taking her on this fantastical journey, draw your index finger and name it, give it a color, give it a texture, define it middle finger, go through all the fingers, have her send that information through her thalamus, down her neck, into her hands, have her, you know, touching her hands to the best of her capacity, knocking her hands together in the meditation. She comes out of the meditation and she moves her thumbs like three times. Wow. She just moves them and her mind's blown. My mind is blown. And so then I have a series of, we just dive in. And so I have a whole playlist of, episodes with her where we continued to work at, got her to use index finger and thumb, got her to the pinch motion, got her to pick up little stones, got her to twist on and off bottle caps. Um, and then we did some phantom limb experiment, mirror box treatment with her where you give up a, a surrogate hand and you trick her visual system into thinking it's her hand. Mm -hmm. And while I'm touching the surrogate hand, I'm touching her own hand hidden. So she's cross wiring somatic experience, visual perception, and like in 10 minutes, she's moving her thumb by thinking of the surrogate hand's thumb. And Incredible. And it's all on video, and, I, and I'm, I'm going, I didn't even know this stuff could happen. I'm just willing to experiment because she is too. But the fascinating thing is that after 11 years of not using fingers, and she was painting, she would have a metal hand that clamped on a paintbrush, and she would sort of 
paint little abstract pictures of people. When I went to her house, none of the people had fingers. Not one person had fingers. And when I pointed to, to the picture, I said, Heather, what's missing from the anatomy? She would say nothing. And then I would have to ask her, do you see fingers? And she would say, oh, I, oh my God, they don't have fingers. When your internal landscape shifts, your visual system will edit out yeah. anything that doesn't match. So a quadriplegic may very well always be a quadriplegic or they may very well have edited out their capacity to recognize motion and movement simply because they were frozen in it for long enough. And who knows? And, and she's not the only, I've uh, got a paraplegic to move, uh, to move his leg. That's incredible. So there's, there's some new stuff happening in neuroscience. Um, You've also worked on another group that's really interesting. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman was on a, a while back. He wrote a book called On Combat and another one called On Killing. And it's about the neurological response of first responders, whether they're in combat or firefighters or whatever else. Um, it was uh, a profound episode, actually, one of my favorites, because he, you know, he talks, a lot of it is, is like, could we stop getting kids to kill people on video games? Because really it's bad for their brains. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we went all over the place in the episode. And you've been doing some work, though, with FBI and first responders and all that. How does neurosculpting and the neuropractice app, how does it apply in that world? It seems pretty different from paraplegics and people who pass out. Very different, but they were actually my first audience. I, I was called to work with them from somewhere deep inside of my crazy self. I was like, I need to go get officers a capacity to push the pause button so they're no longer trigger happy. And this, this was really my mission. And that 13 years ago is when I started working with them. Um, they have a lot of biases that are industry supported that are, um, and, and they, one in three officers experiences PTSD without mm -hmm. ever having experienced a critical incident. So you don't have to ever have been in a shooting to start to harden your humanity around empathy and compassion and that becomes a pattern and I, I saw that in my own family anyone in my family who had been an officer was not someone I wanted to spend time with and I thought why why did that happen so for me I go in and I help officers recognize their neurophysiological predisposition to reactivity versus um, responsive uh, thought, you know, I get them to understand right. limbic bias, I get them to understand limbic resonance, and I get them practices to start first um, being able to handle their own stress so that they don't dehumanize. And then second, we start talking about the um, kind of limbic resonance an officer brings to the scene that then can limbically trigger other people without even ever having to say a word. So we get them to start becoming very... Um, socially cognitively aware of what they do to people just by wearing a badge and a uniform. Um, and so uh, it's, it's been a fascinating journey with them. And, and I have to say that it, there's something profoundly rewarding when you see an officer crack open and have realizations and, and then come up to you afterwards and say, 
if I had these tools a long time ago, I'd still have a marriage. I'd still have a relationship with my kids. I wouldn't be in court on Tuesday for use of excessive force, or wow. I, I wouldn't be having to save my friend from a bottle and a loaded gun, you know, cause he's an officer too. I'm it's, they have their finger on tr- loaded triggers, man. Like, it's a tough life. I, I, we have a family friend who's a cop. And yeah, you walk around all day with people either hating or fearing you for a few years. It's kind of rough on your nervous system. And I don't want anyone with their finger on a trigger who doesn't know how to regulate their own damn nervous system. Like that, that? just seems like user manual 101. So it, It's something we haven't known how to teach as, as part of the problem. And I think you've You've opened a new direction for that, which is super cool. I want to finish up our interview with some real actionable advice. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I want three recommendations to retrain my brain. I'm guessing you're going to say neurosculpting is one of them, but is it? I and mean, what, what are the first three things you'd recommend someone do? I would say let's go way pragmatic, free and easy, right? Because that's how it's going to get done. Vagal toning, shaking. Okay. Shake every day vigorously, wildly. For how long? Um, if you're doing a real vigorous shake, 30 seconds is a really good amount of time. If you want to do Osho style shaking, you can go for 45 minutes and have a lot of regulation. I, I'm a huge fan of whole body vibration. I've probably made it popular these days. I, I put it on the market almost 10 years ago. Um, it was it existed long before that, but it was it was less known than it is now. Does it work if you're on something that's shaking you instead of you I having to do so. the shaking? I, I would go okay. for it too. So shaking every single day, multiple times a day, especially if you want to start neuroplastically in training, you shake immediately following an arousal moment or a shutdown moment. And now you start retraining your nervous system um, kind of like the way you would train a dog to recognize he shouldn't pee on the floor. You have to get him in the moment, right? Is a smaller amount of vibration going to work? I mean, we had uh, Dr. David Rabin, who does Apollo Neuro, like a little device that shakes and has very interesting vagal tone responses. Is that same kind of network yeah, you're dealing with? Yeah, um, that's more vagal. Yeah, that will work. For me, I need more vigorous. Yeah, I kind of like a whole body shake yeah, myself. Yeah. I'll stand on a platform for a minute or yeah. two. So yeah. I would say shaking is my go-to practice. And then I would say a vagal toning circuit every day. So that's like couple couple minutes of gargling in the morning, ending my shower either on cold or a cold water splash on my face, and then humming and singing throughout the day. And then the lip exercises, blowing those raspberries through your lips and really softening the jaw, lips, and tongue. And I'm doing that throughout the day. So you just walk around on the subway going... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I shake right in. <laughs> I'll shake in the middle of a conversation. If something's getting agitated in me and we're talking, I'll... I'll do the little twitch and I feel, I can feel it. Um, so I would say simple, free, easy, so that you start taking agency immediately. Then you can go to the thought level. Thought level is not accessible for everybody and it's a little bit more labor intensive. And then you do some neurosculpting, 15 minutes, you know, and you press play on something pre-recorded. And then of course, you have to look at what you're eating and how you're sleeping and you make those micro changes so they become manageable and then you can build from there. And so that's what I would say for my pragmatic approach. 
Well, that's a pretty darn pragmatic list, and it wasn't anything terribly expensive other than breathing and moving and cold water. So, all right. Really, I, I just want to say thanks, Lisa, for being a creative thinker in a field that has all kinds of, of really some dogma, both around meditation and even on the neuroscience side. So you've just gone in there and said, no, nah, I'll just do it a different way. So maybe the lightning did give you a superpower. Maybe it did. If you guys liked today's episode, go to neurosculpting.com where you can learn more about this. The app we talked about is called Neuropraxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. And you can install it on your phone. It's, uh, I think, about a dollar a day. And what I, I think you might find here is that if you pass out when you meditate, maybe you should change your meditation. And no matter what, you definitely, definitely will have a completely bad vagal tone experience if you do not pick up a copy of Fast This Way, my brand new book. So in order to save your vagal tone, be a good human being, and possibly even save the universe, now is the time fastthisway.com. Have an awesome day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.